Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, battling a superbug. These things have gone from being nowhere to being here in really a little over six months. The new concerns over antibiotic-resistant bacteria, plus the health effects of a flame-retardant chemical commonly found in our furniture. And meet the class of 2016, we introduce you to some of Harvard Chan's amazing graduates. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, June 3rd, and I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Lovett, and we begin this week with new global concerns over antibiotic resistance. A so-called superbug that is resistant to an antibiotic of last resort called colistin was recently found in a Pennsylvania woman with a urinary tract infection. That bug, called the MCR1 gene, was also found in a sample of an intestine from a pig. Repeated exposure to antibiotics can cause some bacteria to become resistant to drugs, and that MCR1 gene was first discovered six months ago by scientists in China. The U.S. has seen colistin-resistant bacteria before, but this is more concerning because it's carried on a piece of DNA called plasmid. According to Bill Hannage, Associate Professor of Epidemiology, this could allow the gene to be more rapidly exchanged, allowing other bacteria to become resistant. These things have gone from being nowhere to being here in really a little over six months. What we are worried about is a possible shuffling of all of these different resistance genes into a, like a single bug, which is resistant to everything. And that is certainly a prospect now, but we don't know what that bug will be. We don't know how successful it will be. Scientists like Hannage say that the threat of antibiotic-resistant bacteria will grow in the years ahead. So what can be done to fight this? Well, one step, says Hannage, is increasing surveillance so that scientists can more quickly identify when bacteria have become drug-resistant. Another step is changing the way that antibiotics are used. Hannage says that this means using diagnostic tools to more accurately match drugs with a patient's condition. Hennage also says that this would be different than the common use of so-called broad-spectrum antibiotics. We want to come up with ways of rapidly identifying which drugs work on which bacteria. So if, you've got, if you go into a doctor's office and you are saying that you're worried about something and he's thinking of giving you antibiotics, then you can, give, you can do a test which will rapidly identify whether or not the, one of the bugs which is in you is resistant, what they are susceptible to, and then you can go off and get the drugs which are going to work against the thing which is causing disease in you. One of the difficulties is that medicine isn't inherently and rightfully so conservative with a small C practice. So we have been working with these broad spectrum antibiotics mostly because of the fact that if somebody shows up in a hospital with a positive blood culture and a fever, rather than figure out what the thing is resistant to, you just want to treat with something that you're pretty sure is going to work. And that means you, we treat people with things that have a wide range of action, but that also creates a lot of selection for anything which is resistant. And as a result of that, we've been seeing this continuously rising tide of resistance. So if we could be smarter uh, with what we do, we could use the, best, use the right drug on the right organism, then that would really help. But that requires both new narrow-spectrum antibiotics and it requires effective diagnostics in order to be able to figure out where to best use them. When it comes to your risk of contracting these type of bacteria, experts say you're unlikely to be exposed out in the street, for example. Instead, we're likely to see these drug-resistant strains appear more in hospitals or in chronic care facilities where patients are already taking large number of antibiotics.
A baby with a Zika virus-related birth defect microcephaly has been born in a New Jersey hospital. Officials say the mother traveled to the United States from Honduras before giving birth, hoping to receive better care for her baby. This is believed to be the third baby born with microcephaly tied to the Zika virus born in the U.S. Meanwhile, the WHO is rejecting a call to delay the Summer Olympics in Brazil over Zika virus concerns. Last week, 150 health experts issued an open letter calling for the games to be delayed or moved. But WHO officials said that taking that action would not, quote, significantly alter the international spread of Zika virus. The death rate in the U.S. has risen for the first time in a decade. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, it jumped from around 723 deaths per 100,000 people in 2014 to just under 730 deaths per 100,000 people last year. Experts say a major driver of the spike is an increase in people dying from drug overdoses, suicide, and Alzheimer's disease. This comes after recent data showed a sharp rise in death rates among certain groups, notably less educated whites. But researchers say it's too early to tell if the increase in mortality among whites is driving up the overall national death rate. A new study finds that concussions among children may be vastly underreported. New research from the CDC found that 82% of children had their concussion diagnosed at a primary care site, like their pediatrician's office. Just 12% were diagnosed in the emergency room, and a small percentage were diagnosed by a sports medicine specialist or directly admitted to the hospital. And this is concerning because the majority of concussion reports come from the ER. And researchers say that because many of these concussions are being diagnosed elsewhere, it could mean that concussions are being massively underreported in general. The CDC findings also showed that a third of those diagnosed with concussions were younger than 12. Women who have elevated levels of common types of flame-retardant chemicals in their blood may face a higher risk of thyroid disease. That's according to new research from the Harvard Chan School, and scientists say postmenopausal women may be at even higher risk of thyroid problems. The chemicals researchers are concerned about are called polybrominated diphenyl ethers, or PBDEs. We spoke with the study's lead author, Joseph Allen, assistant professor of exposure assessment science at the Harvard Chan School. And he says that these PBDEs have been used as flame retardants for decades. And over time, they can migrate into the air, settle into dust, and eventually accumulate in our bodies. They've been widely used for 30 years. They're persistent in our environment. Uh, these are lipophilic compounds that when they enter our body, they store in our fatty tissue. Now, where do they come from? They come from consumer products. So they are in uh, furniture, couches, chairs, uh, some plastics. So they're all around us, and we've all been exposed for many years to these flame-retardant chemicals. Now, we know that uh, these chemicals interfere with some key transport proteins for thyroid hormone. Also, interestingly, is that these chemicals interfere with estrogen enzymes. And estrogen also regulates some of these thyroid transport proteins. So when you put it all together, it may be not that surprising that we see these greater effects on women, but also these greater effects post-menopause. Allen says there's a movement to reduce use of these PBDEs, and that includes Harvard, which has committed to purchasing furniture that is free of these chemicals. Almost 46 million people around the world are living in slavery. That's according to new research from the Australian-based Walk Free Foundation. Almost 40% of those slaves, or 18 million people, are in India. 
and that slavery takes many forms, including forced child labor, sexual trafficking, and forced marriage. India has taken steps to combat slavery. The country recently introduced a new anti-trafficking law and an online platform to find missing children. And recently, the U.S. has taken action to combat slavery as well. The Obama administration recently closed a long-standing loophole that had previously allowed the importation of products made using slave labor, including child labor. Experts at the Harvard Chan School say that legislation like that is an important step in combating slavery. But Arlen Fuller, the executive director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, says that consumers also have the power to combat slavery. There's many efforts amongst advocates to either call out various retailers for the use or the, the ways in which they sell products that have been made by, by forced or child labor, such as whether it's issues uh, related to shrimp or whether it's carpets. There, there are ways in which you can change policy, change the way in which uh, these goods are sold or not sold based simply on the power of the U.S. dollar. And that if consumers are aware of what a various retailer may be doing, that can actually change the way in which they do business. And so while we are trying to address various aspects in terms of the law, there are other approaches towards ways in which we can make a, a large impact and ways that actually may not be on just simply the government enforcement of things. The number of slaves worldwide jumped above 30 percent from 2014, but experts say that is likely due to improved data collection. Another major offender is North Korea, where one in 20 people are enslaved. Finally in this episode, congratulations to the Harvard Chan class of 2016. On May 26th, 539 students received doctoral and master's degrees. During commencement, acting Dean David Hunter urged students to lead lives of service and integrity. And by all indications, many of the graduates are already doing that. We wanted to give you a quick introduction to some of these amazing public health students. Take a listen. My classmates are doing such amazing things. One of them has created a clinic in Nepal. Another one has created a program that's helping young girls understand health and believe in empowerment in India. And I've realized that through seeing them doing this, I also have the potential to do anything that I set my mind to. Over this past January term, I was working in Gujarat, India, in a mental health hospital. It gave me an opportunity to conduct qualitative interviews um, and really highlight some of the major issues facing marginalized populations that otherwise have no voice or access in the health system. I'm uh, hoping to achieve a positive impact in the uh, healthcare and pharmaceutical sectors because I'm going to be able to bring in my perspective from both the basic science Me, and public health. I see a lot of my to, career being uh, advocating for LGBT work. patients, advocating for other LGBT physicians, and kind of changing the face of healthcare in terms of actually directly translating public health research into practice. So you just heard from In Order Jennifer Addo, Mohit Nair, Elul Harputlagil, and Blake Johnson. To learn more about these students and their work, and to see highlights from commencement, just head to our website, hsbh.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this episode of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. You can listen to this podcast anytime on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, take some time and leave us a review.